Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. Today, wow, no power failures, no weather outages. I'm keeping my fingers firmly crossed. Matthew Gibson, it is a pleasure to talk to you. As it is for me, Tom. Um, how have you been? Uh, the end of your period is always interesting. I've been doing a lot of reflecting, both on and off podcast recordings. And yes, I've got a few topics I'd like to discuss with you today. It's been, I think, roughly six months since we last talked. Mm. My understanding through text message alone is that the D&D game continues on. Could you give an update to folks listening in? Oh, sure, yes. How things are going? Actually, we've had a bit of a pause, and I just sent out a um, uh, an email to the girls today. We last played a few weeks ago, and it kind of the the, the uh, uh, one of the main storylines came to an end. Mm-hmm. And so that's often a point in a campaign where people stop and reflect and think about: Do we want this to go on? And uh, if so, where? There are lots of other storylines we can continue. Um, so we'll wait and see. They 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 you know they, they completed the adventure of resolving uh, a few riddles, uh, mm. answering some questions, uh, defeating the. The menace that was in the tower. Uh, there's a there's a, a good moment for a pause, and I one of the nice things is that um, one of the uh, the girls uh, who is a writer mm. and a very uh, good writer too uh, is designing her own campaign, and that's a great um, that's a compliment. Wonderful. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't. I, I won't be part of it. I she'll you know it's sort of something she'll run with her peers, mm-hmm. which is just fine. Um, but I'm sure she'll weave a very, very intricate and uh, emotionally charged story. Mm. So that's the campaign. Um, and uh, I, I certainly hope it goes on because I'm having such good fun with them. I think it's an important an important idea associated with handing on the torch, though. And I think this is something that we talked about sometime through the year associated with whether your role as, as GM would move potentially to being a player but it sounds like you've inspired at least one of your players enough for them to start up their own group indeed uh that's that kind of intergenerationality is uh is something that obviously looms big in my life as i enter my 50s mm. <laughs> uh and uh you know it would it, it does make me uh, think back to um the success of D as a format as uh you know, it's it's now many generations, many, many decades old. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if I was to be bothered looking back to articles written at the time in the 1970s, I'm sure it would have had the cachet of a fad. Mm-hmm. That's clearly not been the case, even though the game has had its um, rises and falls in popularity. Um, but then so have flared trousers, right? And they never fully go away. <laughs> I would hate to think of D&D like Flair Trouble. <laughs> one, one thought that I've had, particularly in the past 12 hours, is associated with the importance of what we do in the context of nostalgia. And I come to this recording having attempted to do a, well, having attempted to participate in a, a podcast maybe a decade ago, and when I did that, I did a negative review of a rule set called, what was it called? It was a contemporary rule set anyway, associated with the conflict in Iraq. And I made the point in my review of the rules that the insurgents had no participatory, you know, there, was, there were no rules associated with them. It was very curious reading a rule book where like half the players weren't actually involved. And that negative review got me removed from the podcast because the fellow who was sponsoring the podcast had, you know, got 
income from the people that created the rules. But this fellow is continued on. He's he his magazine went out of business, but he still writes articles and he wrote a substantial tome which I by chance had it was reading last night. And I was reflecting very heavily that it was all nostalgia. <laughs> the whole thing was held together by experiences that he had had through his life and the importance that nostalgia over any form of quantifiable or I mean a number of the things that he was nostalgic about were books that I had owned historically and wouldn't even rate because they were just unplayable. Um, but mm. it fascinated me that people's nostalgia for these things can oftentimes completely overlook really bad rule dynamics. You and I have rapped about this both in the very distant past, but also in the more recent past, uh, with D&D in particular. And what I find fascinating is thinking of nostalgia, not necessarily in isolation, but as a means of apologizing, perhaps, for some of the things which are not necessarily ideal. And I think with regards to D&D in particular, and you, through your our conversations in this podcast, identified the social aspect, the role that food plays, the role that setting is really important, that this is something that's completely removed from, you know, workaday and other things. And I think the nostalgic elements that D&D has been able to cultivate has been as important, if not even more important, than the underlying rule system and the underlying ideas, although the notion of freedom in it, um, particularly to play characters which are, in almost all cases, the complete antithesis of the people that are playing those characters, is something which I think is incredibly intellectually powerful. And also, to be early on in this field, I, I can't. have we spoken since I went to the UK? I don't think we have. No, we haven't. So one of the things I found fascinating talking with uh, Jackson in particular, because he and I went for a walk afterwards, was associated with the sheer... These are gentlemen who imported D&D for the first time into the UK. Talk about a license to print money. <laughs> hmm. But the physical papers, they, they were importing paper from America to the UK in order to sell this rule system. The ability to actually print the paper on location in the UK, it took maybe five, six years before... TSR even came to that realization. So it was a huge amount of, of trees <laughs> that actually came over with this stuff initially. But the setting through it, and in particular, the quizzing of what kind of player and what kind of GM I was, was absolutely fascinating mm. to see these men kind of work through their own particular proclivities in what was, you know, probably an hour at most social lunch plus you know, 10, 15 minutes worth of walking following. Uh, but yeah, I think, what role do you think nostalgia plays with regards to D&D specifically? Well, it must have, it was certainly a motivator for me to get back into playing it with my son and his friends. I mean, I mean my memories of having such a good time, right? Uh, I could have been wildly disappointed, um, but... Uh, I wasn't. We've had a great time. And I think, uh, as you said, the, the core part of what D&D is, the, the open-ended world, the storytelling components are, uh, are, are there solidly and made for a great experience. Of course, for these three kids, there's no nostalgia, mm. right? They don't remember my experiences. They don't have an awareness of the history of D&D or role-playing games mm. and probably, probably couldn't care uh, less one way or the other about that. Uh, so there must be more than simply nostalgia 
at work to attract them into it and to hold their attention. Um, but the role of nostalgia for me, obviously, was is in part uh, motivated to get it going. So we discussed this, I think, maybe last time we spoke. And my thought at that was that I put a great degree of gravitas on certain things, music, certain books that my parents revered. Maybe I'm just a freak <laughs> compared to <laughs> normal possible. children. But I it's think possible, the, the nature of a parent showing a degree of passion and reverence for something has two possibilities, two diametrically opposed possibilities, children running fleeing or mm. children actively observing. So my perspective is that your nostalgia associated with this thing shouldn't necessarily be discounted. I think the what I found fascinating talking with you, which I tried to kind of extract from you in the recording, but it took a few, you know, a few interactions to occur, was this notion that you had an idea of how a very definitive idea of how the game was supposed to be played. And the notion that your son and his friends could construct a different idea of how this thing was to be played, in particular, not showing the reverence to certain things, which is very obvious, you know, what things you love about this experience, I thought was absolutely fascinating at the time. And I think you you try to remove yourself from this experience, but I think you are so critical to it. And what fascinates me through this is the notion of what to the next generation of, or what to the third generation of these game players look like. To use a term like religion, you know, people say, oh, sport is like religion or television. like." But the way in which you have a very definitive and cultivated view associated with how this thing should be done, the rituals around how this thing should be done, and passing this on to another generation. You can't deny that. No, I no, I wouldn't. No, you're right. Those are certainly things that I, I mean, you'd have to interview my son mm. at some point to, to get his perspective and, uh, on how much my, on, on what I brought to, or what he sensed from me in talk, my talking about it. Mm. Right? I mean, I, he, D&D is something we, we've played now since uh, he's turned 14 or a little earlier than that, but we've been game players in our family's household since as long as he can remember. Mm. Board games, card games, all kinds of games. Mm-hmm. It also comes in the context of it of this is another gaming experience at which you might have fun. But uh, you know, I'm sure I, I I passed on you know some of my um, memories about uh, playing it as a as a guy uh, his age and mm-hmm. older. You know, and all the fun we used to have my 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 friends and I and um, uh, you know, sitting around playing till three in the morning sometimes, mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> eating way too much chocolate and drinking far too much Coke. And as you say, essentially that you talk about those things as, as rituals. And yes, absolutely. I can't imagine a D&D session without the food and the drink and, and, and the kind of camaraderie. Uh, at first, for example, when we were planning to play D&D, uh, we, I'd suggested to some of the potential players that we could we could meet at a local game cafe mm-hmm. if they wanted a neutral ground. Uh, <laughs> in, in part because you know these are young teenage girls, and uh, certainly, yeah, I want, I, I want to make sure they feel comfortable. Yes. Right? and maybe if we started off in a neutral public environment, either that would feel better for them or maybe for their parents, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when I actually thought about trying to run the session in a game cafe, I it felt it felt wrong. Mm. I mean, I know I realize other people regularly play D and D sessions in public venues like mm-hmm. that, 
And maybe you go to a game cafe and they'll have the Mavatai sessions being played here and there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a part of, certainly a part of other people's experience. But for me, it didn't feel right because we wouldn't be in someone's house um, with all their personal paraphernalia around and we wouldn't be doing things kind of our way. So when you say about ritual, that immediately strikes a chord with me on uh, in some in some manners that might not be obvious even. <laughs> so yes, I'd, I'd be uh, I would be interested to interview. Uh, Finn. Well, I will interview Finn. I'm going to spend uh, much of a most of the rest of my life with him. But um, <laughs> the, the 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 girls. Uh, I, I think about... his friend. I mean, my perspective on this thing is if you do something sufficient that people take this away and make it their own, which is clearly what has happened here. My need to understand their psychology is secondary based on the primary act of what they're doing. And I think actually what you've illustrated here beautifully is even if they embody a completely, even if they make it their own and do it a completely different way, you have still created this idea in their minds that is motivating behavior beyond you fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that is incredibly powerful in terms of just identifying that this is why this thing has legs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this isn't just a, it isn't just a game in and of itself. It's a series of ideas that come around it. Most of them are social and most of them actually predate the game, but putting it together in an environment, as you say, that has a certain degree of safety, but also eccentricity is really very important. And I think what interests me around this is that D- D&D in particular, but this notion of role-playing as a thing, is distinctly different to board games and card games and these kind of things, because the external nature of a lot of these things means that the game exists in you know, a box or something that has to be taken out and what have you. Whereas the nature of role-playing fundamentally is as much an internal thing as it is an external thing in physical items. And what I find trying to reconstruct certain ideas is you hold the physical items, but they, they don't have the gestalt that the, you know, the, the actual times playing the games have. And I think people have reverence to particular rules as much for nostalgic reasons as they do for any practical reasons. And what interests me through this, and this comes to another topic that you wanted to raise this recording, is the notion of creating your own rules as a means of, or just creating house rules more than anything. And I think you wanted to offer some house rules to various games, and you wanted to talk about this a little bit more in this recording. Sure. I was, uh, in part because of your the, the name of your podcast, mm-hmm. My Rules Are Better, mm-hmm. with its um, uh, with all its uh, wonderful confrontational stance. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, got me thinking about house rules and uh, why we have them, how they work and so forth. Uh, and to, to, to sort of begin to theorize about the house rule as a, as a, as an artifact. Mm. Um, I mean, for most of us, I think, uh, are, no, I shouldn't say that my own early experiences with house rules revolve around the 52 card deck mm-hmm. games, um, uh, especially some of the more, um, mutable ones like, um, Canasta, mm-hmm. for example. Certainly. Um, I, th- I think of one particular game uh, that originally when we played it was called Sevens, and years later it got the name, came in, that my brother brought in from his family, I think, uh, 
uh, up and down the river. I think it's also called Oh Hell. It's probably got lots of others. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's sort of a bidding trick game. Mm-hmm. Then you know you've 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 got these games where if you've ever sort of gone round to someone's house, maybe you didn't know them before, and you and you they say, oh, let's play a game of cards, and they pull out and you, uh, decide to play a game everybody knows. But suddenly there's there's these house rules hmm. that they they start playing in a way you don't recognize, and it's like, well, what are you what what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if you one ever bothers to look up these rules on online or in in a Hoyle's book or something, they of course have long lists of variants, mm-hmm. right? But when you first learn it, it's not a variant; it's it's the way it's played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, another another classic one for me was when. Uh, I first got a computer uh, that was, uh, and Windows had Hearts on there, and I started playing their version of Hearts, right? Mm. And I was dumbfounded at some of the rules that they had, right? And what's interesting, you know, of course the game doesn't come with any down, any any variants you can pull down, and was, and there's a funny sort of a, a emotional um, response there that Windows is doing it wrong, mm. <laughs> right? Which isn't. Which isn't very fair at all. Uh, and house rules can have, uh, they can cause that sort of social friction sometimes when people don't agree on how a game should be played, even though there isn't actually a standard version. But even with games where there can be one, and, I, and we were playing years ago um, uh, an, a game called Air Force, mm. and we had another fellow come over, uh, a friend of, of two of us, to play. And we had been playing with a house rule about one aspect of the game, and I guess we got to a point in the game where that house rule kicked in and became obvious, and he was not happy with this house rule, mm. and he argued against it, and we argued for it, and eventually he walked out. Mm. He was having none of it, and mm. which was, you know, not not a great situation, right? No one, no, <laughs> we didn't have fun. We we were yes. playing a game and we didn't have fun. So yes. in the end, the house rule scenario, the idea of having one failed us as a gaming experience yes um and it's interesting when i was i I was bothering to look up a few things i came across this interesting quote uh just in on some thread in a forum uh, about house rules for monopoly and just to quote the person in the thread the original text was it seems likely that i may be involved in a game of monopoly soon i'm not a big fan of monopoly for a number of reasons one of which is that part way through the game someone will reveal that they assumed we were playing with a house rule that no one else has heard of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that kind of more succinctly summarizes what one of some of the things I was trying to say. And just this idea that everyone comes to these things with so many different house rules and they can cause they can cause friction. Mm. Right? Have you ever had a formality associated with house rules? I mean it could just be the nature of the eccentrics that I entertain, but Monopoly in particular when we went and stayed at a particular beach house, there was an an, an addendum to the rules, which was a very neatly written out set of additional rules that I think might have even changed over the eight years that we went to the beach house as people <laughs> added and took away. But in part of the agreement of playing the Monopoly was that you would pick up these households. I remember after someone had obviously stayed there over winter, and injected some rule that absolutely stank. I can't remember what it was. It was something associated with large amounts of money moving around. And um, we, for the first time ever, actually crossed that rule off the list. And I remember thinking of this as a formality 
that where you have house rules particularly associated with monopoly and you have people that come in because this was a, a beach house that was used by multiple families, so the potential for other people staying there and having their own house rules, there would be an agreement that you would read the addendum and hopefully already knew the original rules as well and would come to some agreement as the introduction. But as you say, the nature of fights associated with house rules are pretty splendid. I mean, they've been, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with The Sopranos, but they've been, you know, characterised as The Sopranos, and they do come up periodically in popular culture as well, that house rules can cause, you know, ridiculous family friction, people coming to blows, all kinds of stupidity. Do you think the formality of actually writing down the house rules goes against the phenomena of house rules, or are you comfortable with that idea? No, I think I'm, I'm comfortable with that, uh, uh, especially if you've got uh, if you, if they're complicated. Mm. You know, sometimes some house rules, um, and one of the things I was going to talk about, what makes a good house rule, sometimes they're an attempt to simplify things, mm. streamline them, but not always. Sometimes they're an effort to to, to complicate things because people feel a game it doesn't sufficiently explore a concept. Uh, no, I'm, I'm very keen with writing down. I remember uh, when Finn and I used to play a game called Descent, mm-hmm. and uh, we eventually um, devised some of our own house rules for it, and uh, we wrote them down because there were quite a few of them in the end, right? Mm. And we can't just leave it to memory. So in in wanting to look at the, the kinds of things that we do with house rules, I, I, I thought I'd... Um, offer up three different house rules that I've done over the time with different games, mm. just as a way of discussing why why they work, what's what's good about a good house rule, and so forth. The, the very first one, uh, when I sort of go from simple to, to complicated, I guess, is uh, uh, a very well-known game. Uh, it's called uh, Clue here in North America, but mm-hmm. Cluedo in Australia, mm-hmm. and I, I, uh, I, I forgive the game designers because it was designed in a time when games for kids and even games for adults were all based around the idea that you would roll dice. Mm-hmm. It was a sort of a given for game design, mm. unless it is a deck of cards, of course. And so in Cluedo, you roll dice to move around the board. Mm. And it's pointless and it's frustrating <clears throat> because you can simply, someone can simply in their turn drag you entirely across the board again Mm. and then you have to keep rolling dice to get back so it doesn't make any sense if it represents a building and you can simply walk around the building so it doesn't there's no theme that's backing up having dice roll movement and there's no fun involved it's a price you're supposed to be paying to get around the board that has no value and it slows the game down again without any value the whole point of the game is the idea of you know, crafting your questions. Mm. So this gets in the way. And I think it's just only, it was only over there because game designers assumed that something like that had to be there. And I think that kids in particular, it drives them crazy because they just want to get to their turn and they end up, they their turn finally, they roll three and they just they can't get anywhere, mm. right? It just drives them nuts. Do you think it's so, a generational thing? Do you think that the games of the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, were the the actual interaction with regards to life and turns and these kind of things was different than it is contemporarily. Absolutely, and it's partly just to do with the the development of 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 what I, could, I guess you could call gaming technology. And I don't mean I mean gaming theory. Perhaps is the mm-hmm. best 
way of uh, a better way of describing it. There was so little, so few game board games around in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, right? Mm. And they all involved dice. Mm. And uh, don't get me wrong. Obviously, I play D and D. I play lots of dice games. The dice, dice have their place. They're wonderful. They're amazing tools, right? Have been for centuries. But they're so out of place in this game. And that as soon as I said, "Look, let's just get rid of this thing. You just move where you want," <laughs> it was like a burden had been removed from everybody who played it. Mm. Right? The pointness of it, of, was, of it was that the emperor was shown to have no clothes. Mm. Right? And uh, everybody had a better gaming experience. But the slowness. Yeah, it's interesting, the actual removal of mechanics for simplicity in this circumstance, because I think here it adds a random dynamic, but as you say, promotes game player frustration, which ultimately probably lends itself. It's interesting, I, our participant Barney Dicker has put out an idea that people should roll for certain things in a role-playing setting, almost adding constraints to a role-playing game. And I think I'm halfway between you both. I think in some places constraints make a good thing. In other places, they don't. But you seem to be arguing that the constraint associated with movement, in particular the speed at which you get to your desired goal here, is ultimately causing player frustration. And, but that doesn't really add anything to the game. Mm. Like if, if, if it was adding something, that would be okay. But I don't see that it does. So, I don't see that. Well, it, it's the yeah. only thing it does. If one thing it does do is it it adds what I would consider to be a negative to the game. Another negative, which is that you can you're trying to get across to you know a, a different room that happens to be a number of spaces away, mm-hmm. and you maybe you you get almost there, and then someone deliberately calls you back to the other side of the board. Mm. You know, so there's it brings in griefing. <laughs> And I remember that when we played it as kids, kids would do that. And it was just like, <laughs> and I don't, I don't really feel that, that actually adds to the game. Okay. And giving the, giving kids the opportunity to be mean to one another, one another is not something I know. I don't think that's a good quality in a family game. So that's interesting. It's interesting. The, okay, let's leave that on the table because sure. we have two more. Let's, I'm so next one, I'll, 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 yes. I'm going to stick with popular games. Everyone, mm-hmm. so everyone knows, knows the reference points. Um, next one is like Settlers of Catan, mm-hmm. which is a game which has, um, lots of great mechanics. It's got a, a terrific trading system, um, second only to, uh, advanced civilization. If you ever haven't played that board game mm-hmm. and it's very intuitive. There's lots of good qualities to it. It can get very lopsided with dice rolling. Now, I would never suggest taking dice rolling out of the game, but, you know, the dice, random number generation, it can be a harsh, harsh mistress. And it, I find it particularly in when you get to five and six players, in part because I think once you get to the five and six player, especially six player combination, the number of juicy spots is limited and people tend to have even more places on the board that give very, very minimal um, resources. Mm-hmm. So... We brought in a system whereby on any turn when your dice, when the dice are rolled, a seven doesn't come up because no one gets resources on a seven, of course, and you don't get anything. You get a token and you can exchange these tokens for a resource of your choice in a ratio equal to your number of current victory points. Ooh. And everyone starts the game with two victory points. So at the start of the game, you know, I'm sure if you've ever played it, you sat there watching your numbers not come up, not come up, not come up, not come up, 
not come up turn after turn as other people begin to build and build and build. And it's a game where it uh, has a sort of a snowballing effect, right? So in each of those occasions, at least, you would have got one of these tokens. In fact, in a six-player game, if no one rolled your numbers right around to your turn, you've got five tokens in front of you, which you can exchange for two resources of any kind. Early on, it has a nice influence of kind of evening out and, and severe imbalances in luck. And later on in the game, it becomes irrelevant because as you get to six and seven victory points, the exchange rate is so high that you really end up using it. So it has that kind of um, mathematical elegance. Maybe that's the wrong term. So that one's been a popular one when I brought it out. Um, other people, I'm sure, might be pulling their hair out right now as they're listening, feeling that it's undermining a core principle of the game. And, and fair enough. You know, absolutely. Um, and that gets, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go back and speak to that again later. The, um, the third one, to go up again in a level of complexity and to deal with something that's so often talked about in this uh, podcast is uh, in D&D. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, that's the magic system. Uh, in particular, the way that wizards have to choose a spell when they rest, to pick which spells they're going to have memorized. And then those are set until they next rest again. And that was something that we abandoned very early on in D and D. I mean, D and D is 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 a treasure trove of opportunity for house rulers, right? Certainly. When you've got the more rules you have, the more opportunities you are presented with to twist and turn those to suit your needs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are very small changes. This is obviously a, a much more a much bigger change. Um, and we've never gone back. We've never used that the original D and D spell system. Uh, and I don't know many people that I've met who do. It's one of the the most I find the most common things that is house ruled out of existence is the that memorization of spells. Uh, in part because it never fit with any magic system or concept of magic I knew from literature movies my own brain right it just didn't it didn't work for me um it works mechanically it's not like the in some games where you you house rule something maybe because of ambiguity in the rules or because you all find it just doesn't work or in fact the entire system as you've noted in some of the books uh, game books you've read the entire system is seems broken it isn't a broken mechanic it works it just doesn't work thematically mm. uh, uh, for me and for anyone I've ever played with, mm, people who use magic should be able to summon something up at will, right, within certain constraints. But that particular constraint has never made any sense. The idea that you would train through this long apprenticeship, presumably, and finally uh, become an accredited wizard, <laughs> whatever that might be, and now you're still having to memorize a spell again every time you rest. It doesn't make sense. Uh, so we've always changed that around for spell point systems or or casting whatever you want from your known spells. The game already has a lot of limitations. You're limited by the spells that are in your spell book. You're limited by uh, the number of things you can cast each day. So there are plenty of things to stop wizards from getting crazy overpowered too early, although it happens eventually, because that's D&D. &D. Those are my three examples of you know where my rules are better. So I think the first two are fundamentally of the same mechanic and are based in part 
on just frustration associated with probability that's explicitly put in the game to perhaps, you know, teach childhood patience or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I think what's fascinating about those two is I, I find them both also... We have a responsibility when we play games to actually create house rules, I think. I'm going to be that bold in saying that. Because we all take our own particular worldviews and perspectives. They're a simulation as much as they are a, you know, an enjoyable pastime. And I think what you've done here is put your own... And look, no doubt these have very practical purposes in terms of your play. I agree. The magic system in D&D, in fact, what I find fascinating, I've read maybe... Two biographies, one authorized, one authorized, unauthorized, of Gary Gygax in the past two years. It was fascinating actually talking with uh, Jackson and Livingston because they knew Gygax. He wasn't just a character in a book for them. <laughs> mm. But the the notion that Gygax, most of his troubles was associated with the magic user class. His um, not only an arcana, but also privately the discussions that he had associated with the you know, the magic missile and these kind of things is really fascinating. And I think what you see in literature is very, it would be wonderful. And I'm sure, you know, there are many examples in fantasy writing, but the trajectory of the early magic user is a path that is littered by player experience more than anything. I don't think there's enough fiction in the world to cover or fantasy fiction in the world to cover what happens through you know, four or five games of D&D kind of end-to-end scenario kind of containers associated with the experiences that a magic user will have. I think it's a critical part of the GMing process to introduce magic to the players as it is framed in the universe that one wants to create. Mm -hmm. And I think the nature of magic in any of these games, I'm looking also, I'm not sure if you've ever played Dragon Warriors, uh, or ever had any exposure to that, but it's a rule set that I love primarily because the magic is a lot more applied, and also you can play the game pretty well without magic. Uh, it's it's a rule system that yeah. Anyway, returning to the D and D, look, I think it's critical. I think the only way to play D and D is actually, I think it's such. It's not that it's broken; it's that the plurality of possible examples in literature and also through experience eliminate the way, the, as you say, the mechanistic nature of the way magic is described. It's interesting that, I've, as you note, I've never encountered anyone who played it by the rules. I did have one player in the work game who had historically played it that way, and when I talked to him more about how it was done, as you know, he was as a 15-year-old self or whatever, he said that the GM had a list of numbered points that they had to go through every, you know, the GM had written a, a crib sheet of notes associated mm. with what had to go on. And it created incredibly mechanistic games where at every point the GM asked them each individually, you know, and it was very laborious. And it was interesting, as you described with regards to your son and his friends, if they had gone off and read the rules and focused perhaps on the magic and generated their own gameplay they they may have come down to or the players may come down to this notion the only way to play this game is to have very well-written notes and to go through every turn very well written going through making sure everything is done every you know 
T is crossed, every I is dotted. So of the three, the magic system in D&D, I think, is a beautiful example that everyone has to change. Right? It's just mm. unplayable. Uh, but what is beautiful as well is that I think it's so unplayable that the people that actively talk about it tend to be the people that have really studied the rules. I think you, the beauty of a rule system, particularly like D&D, is as much that house rules are formed just by misreading <laughs> as anything, right? The GM, the, the 12, 15-year-old GM reads through the GM's guide, misses a whole bunch of rules, and then creates whatever happens, right? So I think that is beautiful. The nature of Gygax as a person and the way in which this whole thing is framed within Gygax's own experience and the religious nature of people that had actually met Gygax and meet, met him on location is in Wisconsin versus meeting him at some convention and all these other layers is a thing in and of itself. But magic is a beautiful, D&D magic is a beautiful example of house rules. The mechanics things that you've done, the shortening may just be associated with your particular worldview kind of mapping out onto these things. And I, this is why I love Monopoly house rules, because you can see someone's politics and vision through the monopoly house rules that they adopt um and you know it's very interesting to look at house rules as means of uh you know just kind of character <laughs> external character as well but no i think these are very interesting examples the notion of magic and the way in which it defines a fantasy world is such a, a critical thing and when you start with your son's players when you started this game how much explicitly did you have to talk about the way in which you were going to play magic and how much was it actually introduced to them through play? I don't think they, they, they none of them were particularly interested in the rules of mad, of, of, of uh, D and D. Mm. Um, they knew there were, were some, they knew they saw the big books. Um, they liked the idea of building a character. Uh, and as you know, for, if you can remember back when you first see D and D, you see its potential, not its limitations. Hmm. You, know, you open the book and there's all these the uh, smell the smell <laughs> that too yes absolutely of those initial books yes, yes I remember it, remember it fondly um, you know now when of course I I look at D and I see I often see limitations mm. and that's a, in some ways it's a sad thing right that I've I've gotten past the the glow of it mm. um, you know but I remember and I can see it in them that when they look at the books they just see all these opportunities possibilities yes absolutely so that's um, and I don't think they were interested in none of them in being rules merchants. They simply trusted that I knew what was going on. I would cr- create a good experience. And I guess that must have been the case because they keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so they're not at all concerned about rules merchanting anything. Mm. Um, and, uh, in fact, I have to encourage them to pick up the book and look at some things. You know, they'll simply say, how does this spell work? I say, well, have a look in the player's handbook. All, you know, digital phone these days, you simply... <laughs> Yes. Type in your spell and it brings it up for you, right? Yes. Which is, which is great because they they they're more interested in just the social experience, the storyline, and and making making the choices that they make and expressing their character rather than any rules, right? And uh, they're not they're not fussed by rules. Uh, they don't feel held down by them. And uh, and one of the th- things I think that's uh, I have always liked about role playing games is um, health how few rules there really are. Mm, exactly. You know, if I, if I just to show the rule core rule booklets to someone not in the gaming world at all, they would go, oh, my Lord, look at all the rules. Mm. 
But actually, when you're in it, there are, you might even say, too few. So, you know, uh, and it gives lots of room for the GM or the GM with the players to devise how they're going to handle something. Mm. So they're in a burning building. How quickly does the fire spread? There's no rules for that, right, in the core books. And there doesn't need to be, right? Let's make something up. Let's have some fun with it. And so you can make up a few rules on what how the fire will spread through the building. And it doesn't have to match. You know, you don't need to, to be someone trained in, in uh, thermodynamics to work it out. You can just have something that seems like it's going to be fun and create a sense of adventure. Mm. Go um, and famously, I think also in D&D, even, even in combat, which is a lot of rules are devoted to, they don't really ever have had a decent system for grappling. You know, for... <laughs> You can't really do a do a barroom brawl properly in D and D without yeah. a bunch of really juicy house rules. <laughs> and and you know what? Some at some points I thought, gee, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a disappointment. And in other times I'm thinking, you know, that's fantastic that that exists that way, Absolutely. especially if you've got the right crowd. Because when I think about what you know, when when do you call what calls for a house rule? Sometimes it can be ambiguity in a written rule system. You know, people don't kind of work out what, what, what the text, what does the text mean? Um, and you have to resolve it with a house rule. That's fine. Sometimes a game has mechanical problems. Sometimes it's got thematic issues, like with the D&D magic system. Mm-hmm. Not all of it, but parts of it. And sometimes there's simply a great big glaring hole that you feel you need to, to fill. And these are all good opportunities for generating house rules. And when I think about what, what, what I love about a house rule is that moment when everyone looks around each other at the table and you know you've got it. You know you've got the thing that's going to relieve the tension and in- improve the gaming experience. And everybody simply nods and they, as they realize, yeah, this thing we were doing before was not working for any of us. And this thing we're about to do is going to work for us, which is why, you know, it, it's not really so much necessary that my rules are better, but our rules are better and they're better for us. Right. And you get and you can see that you get, you get the consensuality and, you know, you're almost it's almost like you've got a little cabal going right of the people who use this rule. <laughs> and it's your little C-Six society who knows that for you, at least this way of doing it is going to be better. One of the touch points in doing this podcast, which I've reflected on very heavily and actually I'm I'm remotely jealous of you having had the chance to meet Chris Abbott because he's been such a positive force in my life for more than a decade now. Moreover, I've had a series of moments with him when I've realized that this person on the other side of the globe for a good portion of my life has had fundamentally the same experience, was when, through photographic form, he identified that he had never owned the GM's Guide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it had never owned the Dungeon Master's Guide. It had never, the fact that I call it the GM's Guide indicates me as well that I never owned this particular time. But yet I was able to play D&D for many years without having owned a copy. And I yes. think the, the beauty of that as a thing that, that a young Chris Abbott and a young Tom Barbley in different parts of the world realize, who needs this thing? It's completely extraneous. All the rules are in the player's handbook. And really, you know, if you want some degree yeah. of authenticity, the monster manual. But really, you could get away just with the player's handbook. And but, yes. Yes, absolutely. You don't, you don't need the GM's guide at all. I mean, it's, in fact, I, I almost, I don't use it on purpose. Yeah. I, I got it. We have it because it came as a pack of three, but I really, I mean, I don't use it as a set of tables. It's, it's, if I was to be disparaging, I would say it's a big, big book 
for people with no creativity? Well, I actually read it um, when I did the work game because I thought, oh, gee, I probably should read this thing if I'm going to run a fifth edition because people might actually think, you know, I, there's, there's, there might be something in there that I actually need. And what I found fascinating was a large portion of it was associated with creating, like introducing what GMing was mm-hmm. to a novice GM. And I think you and so many other experiences in my early life defined what GMing was, that this thing was completely, and it was, it was interesting. It was kind of cute. I imagined like 13 to 15 year old folk thumbing through it and having a series of aha moments. But that was the world that I lived in at the time. Those were the interactions that I had with my friends. Those were, you know, maybe I'd read a Dragon magazine. or There are a series of magazines that just don't exist anymore that existed then that I would occasionally thumb through and get ideas from. But the formality of the actual book, and it's funny, I, I think I probably, maybe just for completeness, purchased a copy of the first edition AD&D, you know, Dungeon Master's Guide, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And I didn't even open it then. It didn't even have any nostalgia for cracking open. The formality that I went through was really when I did this work thing, which was probably about three, four years ago now. And I went through and read it and I, it made me feel strange. It made me feel like this is obviously important for some group of people. But what a different game it would be if they didn't even include this. (laughs) And kind of force the players to be raised by wolves and to actually, you know, construct. And it's interesting looking at modules as a thing as well. For me, I had only a very small number of modules. They were mainly associated with graphic design. I mean, uh, the Dragonlance modules really upped the game associated with 3D, you know, texture map stuff and this kind of stuff. But the actual nature of modules was hours and hours of books and maps and all the stuff that Chris Abbott talks about as well, associated with you creating your own worlds, your own environments, your own political systems, all these kind of things. And mm-hmm. I think that's what, you know, if, if there were fundamentals in the idea of this podcast, it was very much the idea that the experience and imagination can construct amazing and fascinating worlds. And one of the joys that I really got through doing D&D, because my, I'm a longstanding frustrated understander, of, of D&D as being a rule system that works wonderfully in the kind of level one to four <laughs> and then mm-hmm. five through to nine, it's kind of strange. And then it's unplayable beyond that. I mean, it's kind of difficult keeping, you know, characters five through to nine interested. So it's a, it's a such a curious notion that the rule system is flawed and the fact that the characters will all grow out of the rule system by necessity. So, yeah, it is interesting um, returning to this thing uh, periodically. But yeah, I don't know. I I would hope that there would be better things that could come from it, uh, maybe just to inspire people. Maybe the role of D&D is just to get people inspired enough to kind of continue on a lifetime of creating these games and questioning and finding others, finding the others out there in the world. What say you, Matthew? I'm not sure what I say, Tom. I uh, I have to give that so ponder that one again. A, a good answer to that. Sometimes I, I think I, I give you answers without pro- properly thinking about it. Certainly for me, it was both a uh, it was an escape, mm. but it's also been a way for me to to be creative. Mm-hmm. You know, I 
I um I sometimes um squirm a bit when I hear people who um identify as artists and who uh are um artists in a very more traditional sense. You know, they do um visual arts mm-hmm. or they are musicians or something, mm-hmm. talking about, you know, the their life as an artist and 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 how it's different for creative people than from other people. Mm. And uh you know, having been uh, you know, a DM and uh, a stay-at-home parent, uh, uh, you know, and worked in uh, uh, daycares or with small children, um, or being a, a my current job as a field archaeologist. There's so much room for so many opportunities for creativity outside of the traditional arts, which is not to say that they aren't creative. Of course, of course they are. Um, they're just uh, they're not well heralded. You, you can't write down the amazing experiences of a particular D&D session where you had to think on your feet, create backgrounds, create storylines uh, in response to your players, um, uh, being at home with or looking after kids and having to kind of constantly come up with uh, stories or ideas or fun things to do. There's uh, So I think that what D&D does uh, is it creates a... Uh, another opportunity for people who are already fairly creative, but also I think it's a particularly interesting way for some people who are not creative in the traditional arts to find expression. Um, and I know that because that was me. You know, I'm not really an actor. I'm not really a writer. I'm not really a lot of things. I certainly can't sing. I can't play an instrument with any any that you'd want to listen to. But I'm a decent GM and I can write a good story concept and then embellish it on the fly with the, with the players responding, you know, listening very carefully to what they're enjoying and what they're looking for and responding as we go and uh, not having to, 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 to pause play while I think of anything. So and I can see, and I know that's the, been the case for other people who have been GMs. Hmm. And I know that the same thing is true for players. You know, they, they get presented with the opportunities that I throw at them and they they come up with solutions. They come up with a they, they they dig deep and they can try and find a little bit of a character response that isn't their response. So that's, I think, one of the uh, the pleasures of D&D is giving those moments for people to be creative, perhaps who don't aren't able to in some of the traditional ways. I don't want to try and value one over the other. I think the ability to present coherence out of potentially cognitive chaos is really a very interesting and important skill for the for the games master to have mm-hmm. and i think of it very much associated with traditional storytelling in large part i love the notion of catharsis which i think is part of traditional episodic storytelling and the ability to plan it's interesting because when i was a boy a lot of this was planned in maps hours and hours and hours drawing maps. Mm-hmm. And when I do it, when I did it at work, particularly for the D&D campaign, it was almost like blobs with lines between them. <laughs> here was the main event. Here was the linking part. There was going to be a certain amount of walking. There was a probability of orcs, always a probability of orcs. <laughs> um, but, you know, that these were the things that would create it. And the story around that was more associated with what point of resolution would I like the characters to have by this point? What kind of problem solving would I like them to have? 
how do I want to challenge each of them differently through this thing? And part of it was the notion of, I realized very early on, because it was a relatively fixed amount of time, I was dealing with about maybe three hours, four hours if I was lucky, that they would probably never be at a position that I'd want them to be at by the time this thing would conclude. And moreover, that they could make choices through that that would take them off established maps that I had. The mm-hmm. decisions that they would make weren't procedurally confined in a way where I could even guarantee that they would come to a point of resolution that I had previously thought about. And it's interesting, actually, the change of my mind. One of the things I loved was the retention of numbers. It's one of the things that, unfortunately, doesn't exist in my professional life. But the ability to retain, and I used some dice as indicators and things like that. I mean, I used a few things. But the ability to contain 12 to 20 points of conflict numerically and have some sense of where various things were and to work through it did amazing. I, I think of this... In particular, because I think the role of being the games master needs to have intellectual benefit as well. I think there is some strong intellectual benefit in games mastering, which is very rarely discussed, and but is very intimate and very much created by the games master. And certainly for this game, the work game, it was a lot about remembering parts of my youthful brain that hadn't been worked on for 30-odd years. And part of that was associated with the numbers component. Part of it was associated with just surprising the players in really, you know, a small number of surprises over any given game session. And I think a lot of the... You talk about the traditional arts, which I think is fascinating, because a lot of the... What I think of as kind of campfire, early human narrative is lost in traditional day-to-day life. And what I found really fascinating through my early interaction with you was that clearly you got that. It's interesting when you banned the N-word on this particular podcast, because I so heavily associate, perhaps this is, perhaps there's a corporate N-word here associated with just rubbing over rough edges in games. And they're like, ah, yes. And it's got this. Mm. Whereas actually what you talk about with regards to stories and story arcs and all these kind of things is what I would use the N-word as meaning here. And actually, I found so critical in my early interaction with you and appears to have continued on. But it's interesting that you see this kind of corporatist use of the N-word as a means of just, you know, creating something soft and fluffy. But actually, through that, there's an importance you give to this, which is so central to the way in which you play that you don't want it to be, I don't know what the term would be, like taken over and used in a negative light. So, yeah, part of the year's trajectory has been some elimination of the use of the N-word in this podcast, because I think you've kind of challenged me to not use a cliche and perhaps to dig a little bit deeper, but also to appreciate that a lot of this is implicit in terms of our general gameplay and interaction. Is that making any sense, my? Sure. <laughs> oh, well, a bit of both. Okay, very good. <laughs> uh, yes, the, the N-word has been co-opted, I, I feel. And uh, um, I see it also that, you know, there buzzwords, of course, belong in every mm. in every uh, aspect of life. And um, in gaming, uh, the N-word is, is a bit of a buzzword these days, as along with the word asymmetric, if you've mm, ever yes. um, seen any board game Kickstarters um, 
you better make sure you tell people that your game is asymmetric or you won't get it backed as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I love I love the storytelling aspect of uh, of D&D, especially its cooperative nature. There is a requirement for the DM to be a little bit more of the story player. They've got to have worked out some things in the background. But the best GMs are, uh, I think, for my money, are the ones who are ready to twist and bend the story uh, in response to players mm. players' needs. What, what is it that's exciting them? It'd be interesting for you to interview uh, someone who is a professional DM. Oh, my goodness. There, there's a lot of them out there. In, in, in particular because... Every every time they're at work, when they're running a session, it's it's typically for a new new group of players, right? You know, a party. It's a it's a birthday gift. It's a whatever. Uh, sometimes they're going to be young. Sometimes they're going to be older, and they have to do it on a nightly basis. And they don't even know these people, and they're they have to be so sensitive to uh, different personalities and needs, and try and make the whole thing work, and and hand over some of the storytelling at the same time. Be interesting to hear what their what what their takes are on on all of that. Well, I mean, thankfully, they... thankfully, because of the nature of their professions, many of them have YouTube channels where they talk about this pretty ad nauseum. Oh, I think it's <laughs> it's very interesting, actually. I I through work, just in general work, I got some critical feedback from a fellow who thought that the uh, games that I was running at work were elitist. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating to think about in a context of, you know, inviting people to play these games and having very open-ended and having people from other teams come and play the games and these kind of things. And I really had to reconstruct how the perception, I mean, he, he is a gentleman with children, obviously couldn't make the games, but how um, running one of these games and trying to include as many people as possible can still be perceived by people that have no... Well, no interest, I guess, and no sense of what these things are uh, in some regard. The nature of the professional GM is something that I find fascinating because certainly early on, particularly uh, co-workers that attended just a couple of these things would occasionally forward me these professional GMs. And maybe also people do watch the professional GM's YouTube channels and get a sense of their D&D experience needs to be framed by people that follow the particular views or beliefs of the professional GMs. I find the whole thing very, very curious. Um, it's interesting that you mention it <laughs> because my viewing of them and particularly passively when I find myself, you know, being recommended their channels and I watch a few minutes and then realize, ah, it's one of these professional GMs. The nature of doing this and the kinds of audiences that they deal with are very interesting. I periodically, because I, you periodically use social media, get these Facebook ads of fly to Scotland, stay in a castle for five days and be GM by, you know, it's this American dude. Um, and it always strikes me. And the other thing that they do, which you might have missed in your viewing of this phenomena, is they will include some actor from Star Trek, usually a female actor or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or all these other things. So it's like, Go and play D and D in Scotland with these, you know, whatever you call them, list celebrities, and uh, you know, and this ordained GM. I can't think of any experience of that. <laughs> it sounds like hell on earth to me. But um, obviously, people are paying money for it. I mean, obviously, there's an industry surrounding this. And locally, well, not locally anymore. When I used to live in Las Vegas, there was a group in Utah that met in the forests of Utah, and they did 
I don't know, 10 years of this thing in this place that they called Valhalla. Uh, and it was an elite get together of who's who in, you know, YouTube, wargaming, role playing game circles. It all struck me as very curious. The whole nature of professional, professional D&D as a thing, I find very, very strange. It was funny when I went to Fighting Fantasy Fest because at a much smaller scale, the same is true even of fighting fantasy books, that there are people that have these ordained fighting fantasy getaways. I mean, obviously much smaller, much lower key, and I don't know, maybe someone who played a Dalek on Doctor Who <laughs> 30 years ago might be the celebrity that you're playing with. But, you know, it is very strange, this whole phenomena of, and I think, I mean, if anything were to go against this podcast in its entirety, it's the notion of an ordained GM who works professionally I mean, it's, I'm sure it's fascinating. I'm sure there's all kinds of curious reality TV moments where, you know, they turn up and they're jamming for, you know, a bunch of glazing executives or things like that. I mean, just like company retreats gone wrong kind of Mm -hmm. experience. But that is so antithetical to anything that I would want to do. And I would recommend if anyone is interested, please spend good quantities of time on YouTube with these people. It's one of the things that fascinated me actually with the Jackson Livingston experience was you could tell in their questioning the many different phylums of GMs that existed in their own minds hmm. and how they have actually phylumated this thing to an amazing level. It was like a, almost a good cop, bad cop, uh, job interview gone crazy. <laughs> Hmm. associated with their selective question. It could also be in my jet lag mind that I'm overemphasizing that in the experience. But I do remember talking a lot about not using game screens. I talked quite a bit about 3D printing, which genuinely fascinated them, that there aren't a good range of... I mean, you'd think with all the intellectual property, the Walking Dead et al., although there are Walking Dead games and there are Walking Dead miniatures, but it's actually really difficult to find, you know garden variety zombies these days if you're going to play a large zombie adventure i've got a a few bags of 3d printed zombies that my co-worker printed up for me that i've got to cut off the the sprues eventually but yeah talking with them about this kind of stuff though was fascinating as well but the notion of the many ways the gm can go wrong early on and perturb players in a variety of different directions and when i watch these professional gems particularly the ones that are ordained by you know wizards of the coast and the ones that are ordained by the packs, you know, what have you, and all this kind of stuff. I always think this thing is... And, of course, there's the fellow who does the Dwarven Forge uh, scenery. I'm quite a fan of Dwarven Forge scenery, don't get me wrong, but his, everyone's mm. dressed up, you know, there's a lot of bodice <laughs> up front and all this other kind of curious stuff in it. It just strikes me as this thing is kind of alien. It's a bit like watching, you know, it's like animal evolution in some regard. <laughs> like... I don't know where we're on the dolphin tree or something like that, and there are bears and gorillas over there, and we're just kind of looking at them. Um, but yeah, it is interesting the many different permutations that this thing can be taken in, and also how house rules are so totally critical to this thing as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and uh, I think it's terrific that people are uh, being professional GMs. Um, uh, it, my brother turned a certain age. And his kids bought him for his birthday a session for oh. him and the family. Uh-huh. And he didn't play obviously since we were since we were lads, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and they had a brilliant time. Mm-hmm. It was so good. He went out and bought the starter set again, oh, and is planning on running 
uh, a campaign with his family. Uh-huh. To, I mean, how how big of a win is that, right? Certainly. And uh, the other thing I think about is when I think about uh, setting up a campaign, uh, it isn't, you know, as a GM, a DM, you're, you, you, you ponder a li- for a little bit, do I have the time? Mm-hmm. Because as a DM, there's a lot of time input probably. Um, but I often forget about the players. Are they thinking about that? And I think there are a lot of people who might enjoy the odd role-playing experience, the odd D&D session. But when they confronted with the idea of, you know, turning up even once a month mm. for an evening, it's like, mm, it's more than they're looking for. Mm. And so the professional GM, the, the one night a year getting together and, you know, glass of wine, uh, <laughs> chocolate and, 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 and some friends and just having a, having a bit of a blast, uh, scratching that itch for those kind of people. I think that's terrific. Yes. Interesting. It, it has, <laughs> I think of this locally because in our area, street walkers are a phenomena and I treat them very, I mean, I come from a legal, prostitution environment and i treat them as that they should be unionized and these kind of things very normal associated with that whereas the american particularly in my area view of prostitution is very very different than that and it's interesting actually that i have this this dim view that professional gms are, are the kind of street walkers <laughs> and you have the view that actually no this could be you know this could be a really positive thing in people's lives I need to take away and have a long think about this thing. You've given me a lot of food. <laughs> there are too many metaphors, too many layers to this thing. I guess, I guess my view is that the, what I have seen has always irked me, but the possibility is there, as you note, for it actually probably to be a good thing. And maybe those that are actually good are less likely to be self promoting on YouTube or, these kind of things. So maybe I've just seen the worst possible examples of this phenomena. Interesting. Maybe it's the YouTube world that has turned you off. <laughs> I mean, but I, I, when I when I look up, you know, professional DMs or seen read uh, articles about them, mm. I mean, they 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 don't have YouTube channels. They just they just they, you know mm. uh, they have enough work we- by we- word of mouth. Yes, weddings, parties, anything kind of thing, right? Yes, and uh, and they they do their gig and they have a blast and they and they've got lots of little miniatures and uh, everybody has a has a fun time. It's a one night adventure, and, yes. and everyone goes away having felt like they'd had a they'd watched an episode of <laughs> Game of Thrones where a there were no gratuitous boobies, yes. B nobody had to die, <laughs> and uh, C they got to influence the storyline. Yes, yes. Who who the, everybody wins. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of food for thought, there. Lots of. I guess yes. It's one of these things where the whole notion of paying for it is just too extreme in my own mind. And yeah, like, why pay for it when I've just got all this psychology just waiting for it to happen? So, (laughs) (laughs) beautiful Uh, thoughts, beautiful thoughts. So, as we, as we move into, we've been talking for more than an hour and I've completely lost track of time. In terms of, Thoughts for next year. What, I mean, you, maybe you listen to this thing. I don't know if you listen to this thing. I just try to pull you back occasionally so we can have a nice conversation. But what kinds of things are you looking forward to in the new year in terms of your own gameplay? I mean, if, if that exists. And if you are a listener to this podcast, which I'm never really sure, what kinds of things would you like to see through this podcast? Well, I certainly listen to your podcast. Absolutely. Very Look good. forward to it. Um, uh, 
I'd love to hear other people's views on house rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't, uh, can't impose that, but uh, that would be very interesting. Um, I'd love to hear uh, from uh, any uh, women listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that no one can speak for their whole group, but uh, there might be some really interesting perspectives that are different on role playing and what Absolutely. it offers. Love to hear from some younger people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, um, a man in his in his forties, fifties. Crusty, or 60s. I think, is the term you're looking for. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, we we. Um, but it'd be great to hear from some younger people, especially. Absolutely. Love to hear someone who's very, very new to D and D, or it doesn't have to be D and D, of course. I mean, or to gaming, to mm-hmm. other role playing systems, whatever it is, and what the uh, the attraction is, because they're coming to it at a time when there's far more on offer. Oh, like back goodness. in the 1970s, yes. when when I heard about D&D. There was only at that time, there was like Monopoly and Snakes and Ladders. And then suddenly, boom, this role-playing game. Oh, yes. And huge in my world. Mm. Whereas it's not so big in Finn's world. He's mm. having a great time, but he's got a bevy of opportunities for expressing and exploring in a, in a gaming way that, that we never had. Mm. So it'd uh, be very interesting to hear from younger people about their impressions of and their what they seek out from this experience. In terms so of you personally, mm-hmm. what is the next year looking like? You're, a, I mean, the world still be a D and D campaign, or you're not sure about? Well, I, I certainly hope so. And if if mm-hmm. it's not with the same individuals um, for whatever reasons, uh, obviously I will miss their company greatly. The the, the two young girls are just uh, just terrific fun, wonderful mm-hmm. human beings. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure my son and I will seek out, uh, some other people to play with. We've been having such a good time with it. Uh, and there's our, our board gaming life, uh, of which I can't mention one particular thing that I'm looking forward to because it may or may not be a Christmas gift. Mm. And the person mm. may or may, may or may not be sitting next to me right now. <laughs> Very good. <So. laughs> Say no more. Um, and other than that, uh, I hope that we'll go and do a, uh, plan at the moment is to go and do a um, mountaineering trip in the Rockies. Wonderful. Completely unrelated to gaming. How well, about no, that? No, but no. My, my Look, my view is that actually experience drives so much of this. And certainly my return to the UK, in fact, my return as an adult to the UK, motivated my thinking in a variety of different directions. I actually think experience is just as important as the games we play and motivates oftentimes. And it's interesting, actually, how much of this experience is normally normally just cognitive, i.e. you read something or you become fascinated in an area, go through a particular interest in the First World War currently and the lead-up to the First World War and exploring a lot of history through that, and that's motivating quite a bit of thinking. But that's reading versus actually experiencing, you know, the wilderness. And experiencing the wilderness, I think, changes one's perspective with regards to all these games too if you have to do well, some adventuring so i mean for me it changes perspective on everything exactly um uh this this past year the big the big adventure was to uh, do diving we, we got our diving sure. certificates uh, open water and did a bunch of dives and that was great uh, we'd love to go back to the mountains and so we'll probably do the uh even though i, I have a past in mountaineering i used to have all the gear and mm-hmm. uh led people on trips up mountains uh i've, I've forgotten it all right it's been it's been too long, so we'll probably go with the uh, uh, the ACC, the Alpine Club of uh, Canada, and go and do the uh, the uh, the general mountaineering camp that they've hosted since I think 1909. Mm. 
maybe 1904 or something like that. Mm. And uh, that'll be a great way to, to get us all back into the mountains. So that's the thing I'm looking for for the coming year. Wonderful. Well, for me, the year is not yet over. No. I'm heading back to Australia. I'll be seeing oh. Helen on at least two occasions. Going Lucky back to you. Adelaide for me, in particular, the, the very house where you and I used to talk and these kind of things is, you know, Helen is just such a consistent character in my life oh, and yes. provides such wonderful conversations and such wonderful memories. So I will be seeing her. The game stores in Adelaide have changed a bit. I follow many of them through social media. The one that I really liked, which was, I think, called Military Strategy. Military, or, military Hobbies? Military Hobbies, yes has now gone exclusively pre-painted toy soldiers, which I found very curious. They used to be a wonderful resource of a variety of different things, certainly lots of old miniatures that people had pre-loved, and going there and buying, you know, half a dozen of them periodically was a great favourite of mine, and also talking not only to the people in the store, running the store, but the people that would come into the store was always great fun. So that has changed. Um, However, I've heard... You know, there are a number of really good hobby stores in Adelaide, and uh, I certainly went into them and asked them why they weren't stocking any of the local miniature manufacturers and all the usual instigatory things that I do when I go to <laughs> hobby stores in Australia. Um, but yeah, so I think I'm Adelaide for me is just such an emotion. It's an emotion, it's a series of smells. It is the summer. I convinced my wife because she likes the coast that we could go to Ordinger and I could sneak into Adelaide for a couple of days. So best of both worlds. Uh, but yes, that is coming up. And next year for me, without narrating too much, is going to be a lot of time spent in Los Angeles. And part of this thing has been discovering that a number of the seminal game stores in LA are going out of business. Mm. But Brookhurst Hobbies at least will still be open. Uh, and I'll spend a bit of time there. But I've also asked if there are any listeners in the broader, I'm going to be spending most of my time in Orange County, but um, for, you know, two hours travel in any direction, you can end up in good parts of LA and actually also potentially San Diego as well. So if there are any listeners in those areas, I will have a bit of downtime and uh, look forward to catching up for a meal or something like that, if, if that's of interest. So that, for me, the new year... I'm looking at here, I'm embarrassed to say I actually painted some while you were talking, although I shouldn't dwell too much on this. I'm looking at a bunch of orcs and a bunch of dwarves, which is going to be a game system, a small skirmish game system that I'm going to film and put out in the near future with a view to also move it to a historical system as well, uh, or at least where historical stuff is playable. There's a variety of different bits and pieces. Our listener and regular participant, Barney, has his own podcast now, Loco Ludus, and he's been talking about what he's calling an AI activation mechanic. I think it's probably, from my perspective at least, because the term AI is very heavily loaded. It's a, it's a bunch of things um, of, of, of Barney's you know, creation and thought about. So no doubt I'll have more conversations with him. I'm chatting with him this Friday as well. It will go out in his feed. Uh, so yes, a bunch of conversations, a bunch of games and no doubt a lot of different thoughts and directions. Out of the podcasts that I record, My Rules of Better has gotten more attention, I think, than anything, even Model Rail Radio, just because I so genuinely enjoy the characters, but also the cognitive space that it inhabits in my life. So folks will hear some discussion that I put out last night about how this actually manifests with regards to rules and other things, but that's an ongoing conversation. Matthew, it is such a luxury 
to be able to chat with you, uh, even occasionally. The, I feel uh, the same way, Tom. It's a great pleasure. <laughs> the importance and, uh, that you have had in my life and the distance, the, the disappearance of Matthew Gibson for, you know, 30 years of my life. <laughs> Although I heard amazing stories of you mountaineering out in Canada and doing a bunch of other things. I mean, the, the epic stories of Matthew Gibson did come back to me, like some, I don't know, far-flung adventurer going and slaying <laughs> dragons in all parts of the world. But uh, to have the luxury to actually talk to you in real time is is really very important, and I think you've been such a central and important character in my life, the ability to have these conversations in a recorded form for others as well is just untouchable. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Tom. Take care. <laughs>